I'm sorry, I blacked out. Dude, they're making fun of you. Wise up. Maybe that's why you don't have any friends. Please, spare me the details. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's not going to be a housemate forever. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. Nothing's as changeable as a young man's heart. Take hope and a warning from that. I will... Okay. That great. just sounds very ominous to say. Well, it's, it's, I think it's meant to be. The husband and wife team aspect of this is really all we've got going for us, Tom. <laughs> well, it's not all we've got going, but it's, uh. It's very complimentary. Yeah. When we're both together. Yeah. So if you're planning on changing your heart, well, although honestly, you're not young. So. Oh. Well, you're not. That's fair. Young people are annoying. Yeah, they, they really are. Sorry, young people. We're sure you're lovely. Oh, yeah. We well, just... I mean, if they have the discrimination to listen to our podcast. Well, that's also very true. They're clearly a cut above. <laughs> so well done, young people. <laughs> Stay in school. Yes. Uh, yes. So no new countries this week. That is correct. So get on it, other countries. Yeah. Suriname. Anybody in Suriname? I mean, obviously not. But if you know anybody in Suriname, let them know. All right. Because if we get that, then we'll have all of South America. (gasps) Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. I know. I had no idea. Yeah. That's because I don't monitor that. Well, no, no, no reason you should. So wait, how many total countries are we in now? 125. 125. Yeah. All right. Pretty impressive, y'all. It is. Way to go. <laughs> uh, and our cousin of the week, this is actually a little unusual as mm-hmm. it is not a telegram, but a carrier pigeon that we received That's from right. cousin Andrew. He wrote an essay on January 5th, the date of the premiere called Disability on Downton Abbey. On his blog, it's disabilitythinking.blogspot.com, and it's a really excellent essay, and yes. we strongly encourage everyone to click over to his blog and read it. Yeah. Uh, it was just one of the best pieces of critical writing about Downton Abbey that we'd seen, because more often they focus on the sort of British aspect and the class aspect, right. you know, and the acting and that kind of thing, but he goes through and basically points out all of these instances in which disability is introduced in Downton Abbey as a plot point. Right. And then as soon as that plot is resolved, the, uh, the disability is completely forgotten, Mm -hmm. uh, which we'll be addressing a bit (laughs) in today's episode. Yeah. But very, very strongly recommended to everyone. So please check that out. And if you are interested in disability writing, disability rights and awareness, definitely check out more posts on his blog. Yeah. So congratulations, cousin Andrew. Yes, indeed. And that brings us to Downton Abbey, season four, episode two. That's right. Which, okay, listen. Right. This happens every year, and yeah. I don't know why we always forget that this is going to happen. Yeah. But well, freaking uh, PBS yeah. has to do a two-hour premiere. Right. Because old people run that network. Right. Reasons, I don't know why. Like, <sighs> they, don't, they don't do it in the UK, and they're doing just fine, as it's far true. as I can tell. Well, so. I believe... When we were discussing this way, way back when we were covering like season one or two, mm-hmm. the issue is that like the way that the masterpiece schedule is arranged is the reason that they have to be so stupid. Yeah, yeah. But that is even more stupid. I agree. Because it's like, okay, you can't move Antiques Roadshow around <laughs> for your most popular program. Yeah. Or, I, well, you know, I'm sorry, like maybe Antiques Roadshow is actually run by the mafia and they can't do that. <laughs> 
anyway so we'll be a week behind schedule which is very irritating yeah but if we could catch up we would but we can't we can't uh behind the scenes fun fact it takes us about eight to ten hours every week yeah uh to produce this and unfortunately, I'm never home. <laughs> right. When I am home, we're working on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, yeah. So, you know, if that is a possibility, it might happen. But yeah. it's probably... Don't but, get your hope... Yeah, we hate to get your hopes up only to have them dashed. Indeed. And we were a week behind all last season, too. And everybody was fine. So... It'll well, and I like doing it one at a time because then everybody can have conversations on Facebook and on Twitter and they yeah. can write us letters. Like, mm-hmm. it just gets too muddy if we try to do too much at once. Yeah. Yeah. So. Right. That being said. <laughs> boom. UK credits. ISIS's butt is back, y'all. That, that is correct. We're very happy. We're quite The pleased. chandelier's getting dusted. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the saloon. saloon. needs something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're, you know, whew. I was like, if this is, you know, some stupid minimalist <laughs> credit sequence, Julian Fellows, you know, saw, you know, like some other show and was like, oh, I say. Like Breaking Bad or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what would the Breaking Bad Downton Abbey theme song be? Brown, brown, brown. It's so horrible. I can't yeah. even keep going. No, that's <laughs> <It's> awful. <laughs> I'm so sorry, everyone. Don't try that at home. You will regret it. Yeah, clearly. So, downstairs, Mrs. Hughes has a letter, and it's from Gwen. Gwen? Of all You mean our favorite maid? That's correct. Gwen? The only ginger we've ever loved? Yeah. She's uh, apparently sent them a raven, and uh, and she is married. To an emo dude named Jon Snow, (laughs) who knows nothing. Yeah. So, we're skeptical that that will work out, but, uh, no, apparently she says that they've been keeping it quiet because his mother is very ill, which perhaps makes sense in Britain. <laughs> no, I think the thing is, you know, they wanted to get married. The mom is kind of like lingering between life and death. And right. they're like, well, we really want to like get married. Right. So we're just going to do like a little thing, I guess. Yeah. Okay, because yeah, yeah. it seems weird to do a big wedding when she's like dying. Okay. I guess they're saying, you know, that's why we didn't invite you. I would think so. Yeah. Just like, they couldn't go to her wedding. I, well, but who knows these days? Oh, indeed. Like, we'll God get knows, to that. the whole family might have gone. <laughs> um, Edna Braithwaite asks who Gwen is, and somebody tells her, she's the better version of you. <laughs> uh, apparently, Gwen hopes that she will be able to introduce her husband to them all someday. Um and so Anna says that she's going to round up signatures for a congratulatory card to Gwen. So, great. In the hall, uh, Edna literally runs into Thomas, and they both discuss how people don't like either of them. And our only indication of people not liking Miss Braithwaite up to this point is that, A, she's inherently unlikable. Oh, right. And, B, uh, McGee's bell rang for her, and, like, she didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Hughes had to be like, oh... That's her ladyship for you, Braithwaite. Yeah. Or Miss, I think she calls her Miss Braithwaite, I actually. Think she does. Which actually, in retrospect, I was confused about that for a bit, but then I was like, well, that was Miss O'Brien, yes. too, right? Because mm-hmm. she's senior lady's maid. Exactly. Not junior And that's why maid. Anna is Anna. Right. And anyway. Yeah. yeah. We figured it all out, everybody. <laughs> right. In much less time than usual. You're welcome. So Anna sees Braithwaite talking to Thomas and comes over like the ray of sunshine that she is. <laughs> yes. And she's like, hey, Miss Braithwaite, 
like Mr. Barrow didn't give a shit about you when you were a housemaid. Now that your lady's maid, he's going to bother with you. Right. But like I, you know, be friendly, but just keep him at arm's length. And all Braithwaite says is, I better be getting on. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? Suck my balls, <laughs> Braithwaite. Right. Anna is the nicest person in the world. And Anna doesn't think anything's amiss. Right. Like, and does Anna, does Edna perhaps have a reason to dislike Anna from back in the day? I know. Look, Edna was just weird. Right. And she tried to have sex with Branson. Right. And nobody else knows about that. Yeah. So she's just naturally a horrible person. I guess so. I mean, as we've always known. Yes. Uh, Carson brings in a fairly large and heavy package to the servants' dining hall. Uh, Jimmy asks what's in it. It's Kathy Bates' head! <laughs> uh, it's not. And <laughs> starring Kathy Bates' head <laughs> as Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> Take that, Mac L. Yeah. And Carson says that it is addressed to Lady Mary, and perhaps Jimmy could ask her after she opens it. Boom! Indeed. A lot of booming this episode. There is. We're back to being more snappy. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Even if nothing happens in this episode. <laughs> right, spoiler alert, there's nothing to spoil. Yeah, stop watching, <laughs> you've hit nothing. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes pulls Carson aside and is like, well, you notice that box is from uh, Mr. Crawley's law office, and maybe somebody else should look at it before Mary, in case there's something in it to make her cry. Wasn't crying the answer in the last episode yeah and, and I, also i'm surprised at you mrs Hughes. no listen that is look it should have been just carson making a unilateral decision right exactly she never would suggest that i agree because mrs hughes is a strong independent lady mm-hmm. and she knows that even if she doesn't really like lady mary all that much you know she can recognize that you know what she might be upset but she yeah, can move on that's right just like Mrs. Hughes moved on when that farmer came to see her. <laughs> That's right. But Carson agrees with her, and so, of course, he will take it to Lord Grantham. The obvious choice. <sighs> He's just, uh... Like, him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, to be fair, he's never cried, so that's... No, he cried when his baby son fetus died. Oh, that's true. Did he cry when Sybil died? I don't think he I did. I don't think so, no. He probably cried buckets when Matthew died. Yeah. Well, thank God we were spared that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Baron Julian, for once. For, yeah. Your predilection to not show <laughs> us anything, any scene where anything's actually happening saved us from that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Lord Grantham, he is in his study and he opens the box, finds the little stuffed dog that Mary right. had given to Matthew when he was away at war, which like, ow, heart. Yeah. And then uh, he opens up a book and a letter falls out. Yeah. So I guess it's good that he did that. Right. Well, and that, uh, well, because it was, you know, the first book that he picked up randomly out of the box. Like, mm-hmm. the, So that was convenient. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of convenience happening. <laughs> they should change the, the name of the estate in this episode to Downton Convenience. Yeah. Convenience Abbey? I think Convenience okay, Abbey. Okay, Convenience Abbey. Yeah. We're dispatching a lot of uh, loose ends here still <laughs> with the GD estate. Yeah. Ugh, no one cares about it. Uh, On the contrary, Julian Fellows cares deeply. But we all know what happened to all those great houses. It didn't work out. Well, Julian Fellows doesn't think we truly appreciate the tragedy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, anyway, so the letter falls out, and that causes me to wonder if it was purloined somehow. It's <laughs> a good question. Oh, I know. You're welcome, seven people. <laughs> a lot of people took honors English. That's a good point, actually. And most of them listen to this podcast. <laughs> Indeed. Up yours downstairs. <laughs> the podcast for people who took honors English. Yeah. But didn't necessarily like major end or anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, So back downstairs, Jimmy Kent is reading the paper, and he is surprised to note that Phyllis Dare will be appearing in York. Uh, She'll be appearing in The Lady of the Rose. Daisy does not know who that is, like all of us. Um, (laughs) But she is one of the the Dare sisters, who were real uh, actors of the time. Uh, The other one was named Xena, interestingly enough. Warrior Dare? (laughs) Right. Except it was with a Z. Xena with a Z. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Yes, and she apparently married the son of Viscount Escher and then retired from acting, which is interesting to me just because... I mean, why else would you marry a Viscount? Well, (laughs) indeed. If not to retire. Yeah, uh, but it is interesting. One thing to note is that when I looked it up on Wikipedia, it was very clearly uh, not the eldest son of Viscount Escher. (gasps) Uh, But it interests me just because this is a common uh, Jeeves and Wooster thing where... The sons of titled nobility are almost almost are always almost marrying actresses before their families like find a way to rescue <laughs> the situation. So uh, old Viscount Escher's family failed to put a stop to this. Really could have used Jeeves in that household, apparently. <laughs> um, but instead, they only had a barrow. <laughs> right. Uh, Jimmy Kent is shocked that Ivy has never heard of the Dares. But it turns out, not only has she not heard of them, she has never even been to a play. In fact, she doesn't have a brain. <laughs> right. She is a modern marvel. She's <laughs> just, you know, she's a full human body and nervous system. Right. I guess not brain. She has no conscious mind. Yeah. She was just born to maid. Mm-hmm. Kitchen maid. <laughs> Down at the Dowager Cottage, uh, the Dowager Countess looks at the letter, which Lord Grantham has handed to her. It is, you know what? It is, it is actually a purloined letter. Oh, yeah. Point. It is a purloined letter because it wasn't addressed to either of them. That's right. <sighs> Talking about the legal standing. Do you have legal standing to open her freaking mail? I, Just because the butler said it was fine. <laughs> Anyway, so she cannot understand why Lord Grantham is debating whether or not to give it to her at all. Right. He says he's afraid that if it has no legal standing, Mary's hopes would be dashed. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, she's already lost her husband. (laughs) So she's got a lot of hopes left. Right. Well, her dearest hope at this point is to be heir to the estate that she's going to live on the rest of her life regardless. I don't know. I know. Anyway, why is Lord Grantham the worst? Yeah, These I mean, are our real burning questions. Yeah, I mean, the Dowager in this scene in particular, like, even more than usual, mm-hmm. is, like, just, like... Can't I cannot believe. believe you came out of my body. <laughs> I cannot believe you came out of my sassy vagina <laughs> and are such a damn milksop. <laughs> so, it turns out Matthew did intend Mary to be his sole heiress, right. according to this letter. And then Lord Grantham wonders if it was right for him to exclude George from his will. Yeah. And then the Dowager Countess is like, um, it's not up to you Mm -hmm. who he made this, you know, pro tem will for and to. Right. And again, uh, Matthew seemed to be of the opinion that women were more than just like decoration, but... Uh 
Yeah, well, Lord Grantham could never actually hear those words when Matthew That's was true. saying That's true. He does have a very specific <laughs> hearing disorder. Yeah. Where any time somebody suggests that women might be capable of anything, oh, right. he just shut. Not even like feminist stuff, just basic, like, you know, they can like open their own door. Like physically <laughs> they can. Yeah. They can pull out their own chair. I'm sorry, I blacked out. <laughs> so... The Dowager Countess drops some very serious knowledge on Lord Grantham and says that he just wants to not share the estate with Mary, which, of course, we all know. Yeah. And then Lord Grantham dismisses this by saying, well, Mary won't even want to get involved. Right. And then the Dowager Countess says that when he starts talking like that, she's inclined to ring for Nanny and have him put to bed without any supper. Yeah. Boom! Well, very much so. she's back, baby. Yeah. With a vengeance. That's right. That is the most well-deserved slam on Lord Grantham there's ever been. Yeah. That dude sucks. Yeah, he does suck. Yeah, no character sees fires anymore. <laughs> Balls right. to the walls. We're pretty much just complaining about Lord Grantham for the rest of the season. Yeah. So buckle in. If you're a fan of his, I don't understand you. <laughs> right. You are not welcome. <laughs> so at Isabelle's. Uh, I hate, hate hate this plot i wish we could just skip all of these scenes i know even though it's the only time we see mrs hughes i know but that's not our custom look if we start now these episodes will only be 10 minutes long by the end of the series (laughs) like mrs hughes is awesome here's a compendium of what the dowager countess said (laughs) good night everybody (laughs) uh so the doctor has come to see mr grig and he tells mrs hughes that the only thing he needs is paid work which uh, was apparently the recommended treatment for lung conditions at the time. <laughs> and she says that that's very hard. Uh, the doctor's like, whatever, I've got a job. Uh, but he <laughs> says that uh, Hughes was right to bring him to Isabel. Uh, he says she, she must have known what she was doing, bringing him to Isabel's. Mrs. Hughes is like, duh. <gasps> Isabel calls Mrs. Hughes up to the room with her and Mr. Grigg, and Grigg uh, asks after Carson. And- you know... You're the one who's sick, Greg. <laughs> Why are you inquiring after a perfectly healthy individual? Because he, he wants to see him, of course. And Hughes is like, oh, he, he sends his best wishes. But Charlie Grigg has finally finally figured out what's going <laughs> on. You, you can only fool him like seven or eight times. <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, he he's not coming. And... Mrs. Hughes says something about, well, he's, he doesn't remember your time together with any great nostalgia. <laughs> uh, and Which is Mrs. Hughes speak for, he hates your guts. <laughs> Greg, Greg then mysteriously says that Charlie thinks it were all my fault, but it weren't. So there's a big mystery. Yeah. And then he's, Mrs. Hughes is like, what? And he's like, oh, you know, never mind. And I'm like, if only we could. <laughs> right. But as we can't, yeah. that brings us to the first of our recurring segments. <laughs> it does. We will be discussing the uh, economy of Britain with our own economic egghead, Tom. <laughs> hey, it's Tom Repeats History. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so as I was watching this episode where there's a lot of issues with people getting work, all of them tedious, but I was wondering whether that had really been such a problem at the time because, you know, it seemed like... Uh, first of all, it's like the Roaring Twenties. Shouldn't things have been going fine? Like, couldn't couldn't they just get a job as like the Great Gatsby or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> Only in America, right? And also, I just sort of assumed that there would be 
uh, good times after the war, just because that's what happened in America after World War II. Mm-hmm. They had this big economic boom. Um, but that's really not the case at all. There was a brief uh, sort of spike right after the war. So in, in 1920, unemployment was only 2%. Um, and before that, unemployment had been essentially non-existent because if you were unemployed, they you know sent you to get shot. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, it's not it, actually funny. Right. Uh, but at 2% in 1920, 1921, unemployment shot up to 11% and really never recovered. Um, they had started to get it down to like 7 or 8%, which is basically where we're at now in America. And then the Great Depression happened and it shot right back up to 14%. So wow. basically the British economy was not in a good shape at any time in the interwar period. And the reasons for that, I mean, you know... These are sort of reasons that I've looked up. Any any attempts to make any claim about reasons for the economy doing anything are all controversial and debated. You know, there's no unanimous opinions about any economic story you can tell. This is why I have literally never invested in learning anything about economics. Well, uh, you know. I actually wrote the libretto to Les Miserables <laughs> as the essay portion of my economics AP test. Yeah. Well, you're going to learn a little, a little bit right now. That's fine. Yeah. It's all just going to be like gibberish to me, and then we're all going to move on. Well, so one of the big problems, and these are all sort of the things that John Maynard Keynes uh, eventually sort of turned into his theory, which wound up being one of the the, the foundations of economics, and I'll talk about him in a little bit too. Um, but one of the big problems was that they wanted to keep the pound strong. Basically, they wanted the exchange rate to be high so that a pound would get, you know, a lot of dollars or a lot of, you know, marks or whatever. You know, they wanted they wanted it to be worth a lot of gold, essentially. They wound up putting it back on the gold standard in 1925, which they had taken it off of during the war because they couldn't they couldn't back it up with gold. Right. They didn't have the gold that they needed to run. I can't tell you how much I'm suppressing the urge to sing the money song from Cabaret right now. Uh, it's a lot. You're doing the Lord's work, Ken. I know. <laughs> um, well, really, Candor and Ebb's work, but... Yeah. Uh, this was a horrendously bad decision. And they did it partly because they, they there was this association in their mind that the pound had been strong prior to the war when Britain had been just an economic powerhouse dominating the world. And so they were like, oh, we need to get the pound strong again to improve our economy, when it was really, they were mixing up cause and effect. You know, the pound had been strong because their economy had been so strong, uh, not the other way around. So when the economy was poor, their attempts to artificially make the pound strong, which again, the other issue is that just the fact that we use the word strong, and that has these positive you know, associations with it. Like, it sounds like having a strong pound must be better than having a weak pound. But it's just a random number of exchange rates, and it has all sorts of effects, good and bad. One isn't inherently better than the other. So when the pound is strong, that meant that each pound, you know, was worth a lot more. That meant that each worker cost a lot more to employ because they were trying to keep the pound strong, and that meant that... And because workers wouldn't take pay cuts at this point because they'd all gotten unionized, particularly during the war, they'd encouraged people to unionize so that they could negotiate and keep strikes from happening. So now with everybody in unions, when you try to make the pound stronger, even if workers aren't working more or producing more, then that means that you know their wages are going up 
even though they're not producing more because of this currency manipulation. And so nobody would hire anybody because it costs so much to hire people. One question. Yeah. When they weren't using the gold standard, what were they using? Well, the same thing that everybody uses now, which is it's just worth whatever it's worth. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So so that was basically what happened was two things. Was One, they made the pound way too valuable so that nobody was willing to spend money on anything. Like, it was more valuable to have money than whatever you could buy with it. Thus, nobody would spend anything. Thus, there was no economy. Nobody were... There was nobody was buying anything, nobody was hiring anybody, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this led to deflation, which again is something that it seems like it's better where prices are falling. But when prices are falling, there's no incentive for anybody to spend money because if you just wait and buy the thing in a year, it'll be cheaper. And so, you know, it's again becomes this vicious cycle. And this is actually something Japan has been stuck with this for like 20 years now where they just cannot get out of it and they cannot encourage people to spend money. You know, and that was basically what they were stuck with. And also, government cut spending 75% after the war, which is understandable. They didn't need to fight a giant war in Europe anymore. But all of that money being taken out of the economy also just destroyed everything. So those were the sort of fiscal and monetary reasons for it. And it was also, there were just more like real-world reasons, uh, one of which was that they were the economy as a whole was very slow to adapt. And it's something that I sort of think of as like the Microsoft problem or the IBM problem where you become so dominant that you just can't be ready for the next thing. You know, Microsoft was so dominant in the field of computing that they could never be nimble enough and adapt enough to really take the lead on the Internet because it wasn't their business and, you know, it wasn't what had gotten them where they were to this commanding position. And you just, it becomes impossible to rethink things. And that's where Britain was at. They were so dominant in producing like basic things, coal and steel and textiles, that after the war, when all the money started to be in like manufactured goods, like say automobiles in America, or like, you know, these sort of next level production things, they didn't want to do it. And since the economy was also bad anyway, there wasn't the market in Britain for them. So they got stuck in that trap as well, where they were only producing the old sort of basics that they'd always been producing, and the market was just collapsing for them. I wonder if that's why we see a Ford in this series. Mm, Yeah, that's an interesting question. And there's also some belief, too, that the government was so involved with the economy during World War One that it sort of became this kind of corrupt setup where there was all this, you know, these ties between government and industry. And so there was, you know, all this cronyism and everybody was kind of getting by on just corruption and government contracts and things like that. And that also slowed everybody's ability to adapt. So those were all these things that were going on. And... Keynes was the one that figured out a lot of this stuff. He's the one that said that the pound was way too expensive and they needed to to bring it down. And he's a reasonably interesting dude. Um, He was a researcher at Cambridge uh, where he was funded by two people, his father and another economist named Pigau, who he wound up like completely disagreeing with economically. They're, they're, you know, sort of represent two opposite schools of economic thought, but they always stayed friends. And he was able to maintain friends with uh, everybody throughout his life, you know, generally speaking. One of the exceptions being Lytton Strachey, I believe his name is pronounced, because they were both in the same gay circles. Oh, my. Yeah. He, he 
was exclusively romantic with men through his time at Eton and Cambridge uh, and seemed to have been fairly open about it. Uh, he was part of the Bloomsbury group, as was Lytton, Lytton Strachey. I'm really not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, um, but uh, which was you know, mainly an academic group, but also happened to have become a center of, of uh, gay men. So he, while he did have relationships at times with Lytton, uh, he was also more often competing with him for the same lover. Uh, that is like my favorite kind of historical story. <laughs> yes. Oh, I, I thought you would like it. <laughs> oh, I'm really, this is the most interesting thing you've said to me the no, whole time. I know. Interestingly enough, though, he wound up then dating and, and eventually even mar- marrying a woman. Um, so he, he seems to have been bisexual and sort of changed his sort of, uh, you know, emphasis later in life. He said at one point, uh, sort of early on, he uh, fell in love with a, a woman named Ray. And he said, he wrote, I seem to have fallen in love with Ray a little bit, but as she isn't male, I haven't been able to think of any suitable steps to take. <laughs> <laughs> that's adorable. Yeah. Oh, he just means he doesn't know how to talk to girls. That's he, all. Yeah, I know. It, it was cute. I mean, he's aware that there are suitable steps. He's just <laughs> right. never had to do them before. Yeah. He was also, he was summoned out of Cambridge to work for the government during World War One. It was a, a little bit of a... Uh, sea batch situation mm-hmm. and he uh did various things and was very well respected for what he did so he wound up getting sent to versailles for the peace conference and he argued very strongly and very presciently against the extremely harsh penalties that were in, uh, imposed on germany mm-hmm. the extremely high reparations and he was like if you destroy this generation of the german people uh he said i believe revenge will not limp I really like this guy. Yeah. You yeah. have made me want to read the biography of an economist. And, <laughs> sir, that is no mean feat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And, I mean, he, you know, he wound up, he published his general theory in, in 1936. And it, it is one of just the foundational works of, of economics. And he also, after World War II, was one of the key figures in the uh, the Bretton Woods agreements, which basically sort of set up the global economy that ever since the sort of foundation of it, things like the world bank, the international monetary mm-hmm. fund and exchange rates and all sorts of stuff. He, so he was in, he was just in at a lot of the, you know, key moments of the mid 20th century. Clearly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Did he know Alan Turing at all? I guess if he was an economist yeah. and he was more of a theoretical mathematician. Yeah. It's hard to say. Although he did, Keynes did do a lot of work uh, early on in like more pure mathematics and particularly in probability theory. He sort of established some things in that field. Uh, so I don't know whether he would have known him or not. I mean, they were a, a, a generation apart, but like their lives certainly overlapped. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to say, but it was interesting because again, like it's interesting that he felt he could be so open about his homosexuality in the 19 teens mm-hmm. whereas you know that's 30 years at least before alan turing would get you know mm-hmm. convicted and and commit suicide over it. well i would say again that lends a bit of credence to lord grantham's permissiveness regarding thomas's orientation it does and i mean look you can talk about social mores all you want at any particular time but it's always circumstantial and it's always about who you know, how much money you have, and what your position in society is. Yeah. Somebody in his position who's being recruited out of Cambridge 
you know, to do work for the War Department during World War One. They don't care where he's sticking things. Right. Or they shouldn't. Well. Yeah. But yeah. You know, they may care, but right. they're just like, you know, keep him out of the barracks or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and it's also um, him, that thing about him not being able to know how to talk to a woman was, it reminded me of things I've read about. Uh, being gay today in places like conservative uh, Muslim countries like mm-hmm. Pakistan, where it's actually to an extent easier because the genders are so segregated mm-hmm. in those societies that close male friendships aren't questioned and signs of physical affection are commonplace. I believe we've discussed that previous oh, well, on, this episode, so. yeah. on this episode, on this, on this podcast, on this podcast. We've always been doing this episode. <laughs> it's the bar at the Overlook Hotel. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Tom. Yeah. That was were... indeed history that you repeated. <laughs> it was. I I do my best. Truth in it. advertising. That's what we're about. <laughs> we're back downstairs in the kitchen and daisy has a lot of grating to do because (laughs) they're all coming to dinner who's them all we don't know right so anyway they need two extra places and alfred asks why daisy doesn't know i don't understand why these servants are like asking each other why but then i also don't understand like when mrs hughes knows about stuff and i'm like how do you know i just you know yeah that's hard to say anyway so we go through the love quadrangle yet again (laughs) even though it hasn't changed for a solid year at this point yeah we've i mean it's the it's the dumbest thing since lord grantham yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty funny mrs patmore comes in thank god Putting an end to all this idiocy. Yes. <laughs> and apparently the fishmonger was not in the village that day, so she's going to have to go to York right. to get fish. And Jimmy Kent volunteers to go. Yeah, to uh, Tuttle's in York. Yes. Which is just, I always like that there's so many funny-sounding British things. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, bully for you. Tuttle's. Thirsk. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Thirsk was in Russia. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so he volunteers, and Mrs. Patmore says that she doesn't know that C- Mr. Carson could spare him. And then Jimmy Kent says that if Mrs. Patmore asks, Carson will certainly let him go. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually – I was looking this up because people are going various places, and I couldn't really remember what the geography was like. So I, I went on Google Maps, and uh, it looks like uh, to get from Ripon to Thirsk is about 13 miles and to get to York is about twice that. It's 26 miles between Ripon and York. Thursk is also where James Harriet is from. Uh, I feel like we may have mentioned that before, but I had forgotten about it if we did. Uh, and also Grantham is way the hell. It's down in Lincolnshire. It's nowhere near. I'm really curious about this, actually, because we got a great telegram, which we'll be sharing on the Tumblr. So look out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from an American who's living in Ripon. And yeah. you may have seen on Twitter, she shared a lot of uh, photos of the Ripon workhouse, which is now a museum. Which is why right. they were able to shoot those scenes there. Mm-hmm. Um, but she said that you know she lives relatively close to where the quote unquote real Lord Grantham lived. Hmm. So I'm curious. Yeah, I'm very curious as to what is going on here. Yeah. So uh, we'll be in touch. <laughs> so down in the village, Anna is walking along in and- a horrible outfit. Yeah. This, she... uh, her hat is trying to eat her head. <laughs> it does appear to be. 
uh, she sees Mr. Mosley uh, pounding some asphalt. Like, literally. Yeah. Like, he has an asphalt pounder, which is actually, I mean, this is, I I worked on a highway project for a summer, and this is, you know, that's still what you do, uh, only along the shoulder, like, where, you know, if it's the actual road, they've, they've got steamrollers now, thankfully. But uh, pounding down asphalt with a poundy thing is still... Is that a technical term? Yeah, it's called a poundy thing. Please, <laughs> share with us. More pearls of wisdom from your six months as a civil engineering major. I was just struck that they hadn't improved on that in 80 years. Yeah, so uh, she is, you know, taken aback to see Mosley in this position. Uh, she tries to assure him that he's doing skilled work, but he treats that with the dis- disdain that it deserves. And she again is like, oh, something better will come along. And he says no, and that he owes money all over the village, and that he's been keeping an eye out, and he snaps at her. And then he, like, you know, is like, oh, I'm sorry, that was vulgar and self important. Like Mosley. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't really vulgar, but whatever. She asks how much he owes. He says 15, 20 pounds. What does it matter? It's more than I'm ever likely to see. Anna offers. She she asks if it would be of use if she and Mr. Bates loaned him some money. And he's like, I'm not going to be able to pay it back. She offers to give it to him, but of course he won't accept that. Uh, and then the foreman is finally like, hey, get back to work, <laughs> which is about time. Yeah. Like, yeah, this is interesting because Mosley has not had to fend for himself in quite some time. Yeah. And now he's fending. Yeah. And it's not cool. No, it's uh, it's it's sad. Like, Anna is, you know, moved by his plight. And that's that's understandable. It's you know, it's not his environment. Exactly. This road. It's crew. not his milieu. <laughs> yeah. Mosley's milieu. <laughs> a documentary. <laughs> it's just two and a half hours of Mosley falling down into various things. <laughs> he falls in a puddle. <laughs> he falls <laughs> into some ice cream. Yeah. Molasses. <laughs> horse poo (laughs) (laughs) it's funny because i i sort of feel like that's going to be the end of his arc this season as he just falls into something and like drowns (laughs) oh we should only be so lucky (laughs) up in lord grantham's room mary comes in and uh lord grantham awkwardly dismisses Bates. right this is an episode of much awkwardness involving Bates. <laughs> it's true. So Lord Grantham tells Mary that there is a letter for her from Matthew and he hands it to her and she sees that it's opened and wonders who opened it. Lord Grantham says it wasn't sealed and that he's shown it to Granny and wanted to send it to Murray before he showed it to her but then he's like, no, 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 but now you read it and I'm like, kick him! Right. I just, the fact that she doesn't full on slap him Yeah is stunning to me. She's she's displeased, but, like, not as displeased as she ought to be. Well, I guess she does have, you know, they've all got a bit of Stockholm Syndrome as far as he's concerned. Yeah, that's true. She's just like, well, I suppose I'm lucky you didn't burn it. <laughs> uh, downstairs, Anna and Bates are walking in a hall or whatever, and Anna's explaining about Mosley's situation, and she says that it's it's really upset her, and Bates says, oh, well, we can't have that. Boring. Right. In the library, the whole family has assembled, and uh, Isabel is very surprised to hear about the letter. Yeah. Mary can't bring herself to read it, so she asks Lord Grantham to read it instead. In the letter, Matthew says that they are conveniently <laughs> just about to head to Dun Eagle, 
his last known whereabouts. <laughs> right, right. And uh, he realized that he never had a will. That just really irks me. Yeah. Like, come on, Baron Fellows. Could he not have just done that at some undetermined point in her pregnancy? I, I don't know. Anyway, he realizes that he's never had a will, which is extra irresponsible with her being pregnant. Right. Uh, the Dowager Countess agrees. We already addressed this last week. But yeah. again, this entire letter reads like the rank MacGuffin that it is. <laughs> And it's not fun. But anyway, Matthew promises he'll do up the will properly when they get back. Yeah. But he wants it recorded that he wants Mary to be his sole heiress. And then he says, and now I will sign it and get off home to dinner with you. What a lovely, lovely thought. Which is nice. Why couldn't the whole letter have been like that? Agreed. And not filled with Julian (laughs) Fellows's thinly veiled barbs against <laughs> I would have made Dan a proper Stevens. will, but if I am taken from you, at least you'll have a complicated question about a state law to keep you <laughs> comforted. Mary only can have an orgasm if she's thinking about complicated estate law. It's a quirk of the Granthams in general. Like, oh yes, and tell me. <laughs> uh, Edith and her publisher are going to have a hard time because I doubt he is up on it. <laughs> That's... It's true. Well, he could learn. He could learn about it in Germany. Ooh, he could learn about German estate law. Look out. (laughs) Season five. (laughs) Anyway, Mary's in tears and says, now you see why I couldn't read it. Isabel asks if the letter was witnessed, and it was, by two clients in his office. How convenient. Which is why no one at the office knew about it. Right. Branson says the whole thing is settled. Lord Grantham disagrees because it is not technically a will. Right. And everyone, everyone in the room just slaps their face with their own hand they just oh it's terrible it is rose is there for reasons that don't make sense uh well i mean you know she's living there i guess yeah they wouldn't be like everybody gather around not you rose she's just the roy (laughs) of this and it's just so ridiculous to me i'm like why are you here it is fairly ridiculous down in the kitchen pat moore tells jimmy kent that carson has approved his trip to york Alfred thinks he's got a trick up his sleeve and says that uh, Jimmy Ken only has two reasons to be nice to Ivy. Uh, one is just to make him, Alfred, angry. Like, he doesn't even need to do that. <laughs> right. And the other of which he dreads to think about. And Patmore says, you know, shut up and get this food up. Yeah, remember when he wanted to be a cook, Jimmy? Not Jimmy. Yeah, Alfred. Right. Who cares? Yeah, nobody I'm, cares. Again, over it. I'm over Grig. I'm <laughs> over this love quadrangle. Ugh. Just, can we have like a Quentin Tarantino style situation where Mrs. Patmore just kills all of them? Possibly. And then she and the standing mixer <laughs> have a lot of hijinks for the rest of the season. Yeah. No, this, it's, there's a lot of forgotten things. Like, wasn't it this last scene with Bates where he was, like, striding jauntily along? It was! Yeah. I mean, his it's like he had a cane as an accessory. Yeah, like, he might as well have just been twirling around. <laughs> oh, my God. It was so... Like, we couldn't <laughs> believe it. Yeah. We were watching, and we're like, wait, did you get a new leg brace? Like, <laughs> right. what is this? Did you get a new leg? Like- <laughs> Maybe he got one in prison. <laughs> they made it in the toilet. <laughs> Toilet leg. The John Bates story. <laughs> now it's Selfridges. <laughs> I could just see Mr. Selfridge being like, Rose, 
we've got this valet coming in. <laughs> he used to be crippled, but then suddenly he wasn't anymore. We're going to sell his book right there in the store. I've had 50 replicas made of his leg. <laughs> Miss Taller, <laughs> put these legs in the window. <laughs> At dinner, McGee is very glad... And she doesn't know why that Matthew got a last word. Right. Because it's nice to hear from someone from beyond the grave. Because you couldn't believe how awkward the ending of that last season was. <laughs> and Isabel is also very pleased yes. to have had, you know, a bit of closure from mm-hmm. her son. Uh, Lord Grantham, of course, less so. Uh, wishes Matthew would have just stayed dead and buried in his grave, uh, as Julian Fellows wills it. But he says that the letter is valid. Uh, the estate will have to pay death duties twice before George inherits. Right. And wouldn't that still be the case? No, because if he, if it's all left to George, then that's one inheritance and they have to pay the inheritance there. Okay. See, so now it's going to be left to Mary and then when she dies, she'll leave it to George and so they'll have to pay an estate tax again. Okay. When Mary dies. I thought I understood that, but I guess I was thinking of Lord Grantham dying. But do they not have to pay the death duties? Well, but if- that's, I mean, yes, but that's unaffected by Matthew's will. Okay. Matthew's will only affects his half. So. Okay. But then still, doesn't George have to pay three death duties regardless? In this situation with the will. With the will, no. Because if, if there's no will, then he only has to pay the death duties that they're paying now, and then the death duties when Lord Grantham dies. Okay. Whereas if the will is valid, then he has to pay now when Lord Grantham dies and when Larry, Lady Mary dies. That's what I just said. But that's okay. Okay. British inheritance law, not anyone's best subject. Right. <laughs> uh, Moving on. Yes. So Branson hopes that Mary's ready to get stuck in to all of the hijinks. Yeah. Uh, and Mary says, I just want the right to an opinion. Oh, man. You guys. Yeah. Lord Grantham takes that apparently as a challenge. Yeah. And he gets... As puffed up as we've ever seen him. Mm -hmm. And he says uh, that she has an opinion regardless. And then begins asking her a bunch of specific questions. Right. Specifically needling her. Now, this is the guy who just one episode ago (laughs) was saying he can't, you know, be bothering her with all of this stuff. Right. So I guess the only other option is not to allow her a day to deal with not only the letter, but the personal effects that have been restored to her from her dead husband. He didn't want to bother her unless she got uppity. (laughs) It's very awkward. And then McGee says that... You're just trying to show a woman's place is in the home. I, which he is. Mick G is so pissed at him. I feel like she's going to poison him someday. I do too. Like, I'm like, are they going to get a divorce? Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Like, that would be, a, again, it kills me. There's so many very, 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 very interesting ways that this show could go. <laughs> and Julian Fellows resolutely refuses yeah. Do, you know, any of his Matthew-esque <laughs> producers who have their newfangled ideas <laughs> and they're under 40, right. uh, he's like, nope, <laughs> this is a Julian Fellows joint. <laughs> Things are going to be complicated, pointless, and anticlimactic. 
And they will. So Isabel, Branson sticks up for Mary and Isabel says she's on Mary's sides. Lord Grantham goes, oh, there are no sides. And again, everybody at the table slaps their own face. <laughs> right. Mary uh, just has work to do if the letter is valid, he says. And then the Dowager Countess says that Lord Grantham hopes that the letter is not valid, which is not. It's just yeah. she's so nice to have around because yeah. nobody else can give him any sass, but she can sass him. Yeah. Well, it, oh, she she's the only one that can in, in her way. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, McGee was sassing him a little bit right That's there. That's true. But he won't acknowledge her sass. Yeah, he doesn't care. Again, just yeah. it's wah, 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 wah. <laughs> male air. <laughs> I suppose Cora's on her period again. <laughs> Don't know what that is. <laughs> Please <laughs> spare us the details. <laughs> <laughs> In a hallway, Edna runs into Thomas, uh, and she's apparently ruined some article of clothing of McGee's. While daydreaming. It I, may have been... McGee was wearing this really pretty sort of... I don't even was, know what you would call it. It wasn't it was, a... It's not quite a scarf. <laughs> and it's not quite a handkerchief. Man. <laughs> so to answer your question, I don't know. But right. it's like an overlay. Right. Almost. Right. And it was just really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and it might be that, but it also might not be that. Yeah, it's hard to say because it's all just... You know, we only see it like crumpled up yeah. in... in her hand and her but, witch claw oh, right uh but yeah i think she it, like burnt ironing i mm-hmm. think is oh what clearly it, burnt ironing well and then when she says she burned it while daydreaming i'm like this is why bitches can't just jump up to be in a lady's maid well yeah you need to get your shit together yeah like stop daydreaming about hecate or whatever <laughs> um, man <laughs> i'm always up for a good hecate reference <laughs> i know baby uh, so McGee is cons- is going to be livid. <laughs> Hecate told her she'd be Thane of Cawdor. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that got a five on its English language and literature <laughs> AP test. Because I did. Boom. Yeah. Now I do this. <laughs> Stay in school. <laughs> <laughs> but Thomas has a plan to uh, deflect McGee's wrath. Oh, and we do actually see that uh, brace on his hand in this scene. Oh, do we? Yeah. I didn't see it because yeah. I was too busy rolling my eyes. <laughs> right. It's understandable, but I, I caught a glimpse. They head off in one direction, and Anna and Bates come into the shot, uh, walking down the same hall. Uh, and Bates says that they should get the people in the village to sign the card for Gwen. This is where I've written down that he has no limp. Right. Okay. I mean, look, I think it's safe to say he doesn't seem to have a limp in any scenes anywhere. Right. If he did, perhaps he wouldn't be volunteering to go down to the village all the damn time. <laughs> yeah. He they should says, just get Rose to do it. She's down there like every day. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Trying desperately not to die of boredom. <laughs> what um, if that was... I w- that would be a great ending. <laughs> I'm afraid Rose has passed on. <laughs> Dr. Clarkson says she died of boredom. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Anyway, so yeah, he's he's going to get the people in the village, the Bakewells, Mr. Molesley, that sort of thing. You know, rule of threes, man. Yeah. Who are the Bakewells? Who are the Bakewells? Do they bake well? <laughs> what if they were butchers? That Yeah, that'd be confusing. And I don't think, I don't think they exist. I think you made them up. <laughs> but yeah, 
whoever they are, they are apparently interested in Gwen's doings. <laughs> um, which, by the way, thank God Gwen got out of this. Oh, I mean, look, she's on like an Emmy-nominated series on HBO. Like, she's living the British actor's dream. Yeah. She's, she's the sea batch of this show. Right. She's going to get this card. She's going to be like, oh, right, those people. Like, when you get a card <laughs> yeah. you know, like, for Christmas like, or something. Honey, like, do you know who Who are the Bakewells? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but... Uh, Bates volunteers to collect the signatures, which surprises Anna because he isn't usually social, uh, but he says that he has her, so he doesn't need to be social. Oh, well, that sounds like someone sitting directly across from me co-hosting this podcast. <laughs> I wonder who you mean. Uh, you dummy. I, I know. Uh, you're as dense as Mr. Molesley. <laughs> Take that back. Okay. <laughs> you're as dense as Ivy. Uh. <laughs> it's just gonna get worse from here <laughs> yeah in mrs hughes's parlor uh apparently isabel has found a job for mr grigg at the opera house in belfast as a stage doorkeeper all right mrs hughes hopes that matthew's letter uh wasn't too upsetting to mrs crawley because again somehow downstairs well carson was allowed to be in the room yes was that the one i think no i think that's the next time is the one the right in the room. well anyway yeah yeah look somehow word, well, she, word is, gets around. she is uh into a little bit of the domestic espionage oh that's true so maybe May that's how she found maybe she read the letter and... before she gave it to lord grantham Ooh. even maybe she put it in the book and she was like i know his lordship will pick this up first maybe it's a forgery <gasps> wouldn't that be mrs hughes got baits to forge the letter uh-huh oh my god this is great anyway <laughs> again way more interesting than the actual show right mrs crawley says that she felt happy that matthew had been heard and his wishes were were out there but she feels that it may be a heavy mantle for lady mary her father's a real dick <laughs> true enough uh, in Mary's room, Mary tells Anna that she will keep the uh, the stuffed dog from Matthew on her dressing table to remind her that Matthew was on her side. Aww. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Uh, no, and- it's nice. It's only nice when Michelle Dockery talks about Matthew. Yeah. Because she's a good enough actress that yeah. we're like, oh, yeah, you guys did like each other. Yeah. He wasn't just a constant obstacle <laughs> to your financial well-being. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Anna says that they are all on her side. But Mary says that Papa gave her such a whacking at yeah. dinner. Yeah, Lord Grantham is so, like, why do these people keep defending? Oh wait, he pays their payments. Well, and owns the house. Right. Well, I mean, you know, when he's not, you know, Frittering pissing it all, it all down yeah. the can- Grand Canadian Trunkadelic. <laughs> um. But yeah, and she she says that uh, Lord Grantham is is glad to have Downton back under his control. Uh, and Anna says, but he you know he always spoke highly of of Matthew and the changes that he was making. But Mary says that he thinks that now he can manage it all himself. And the question is, can he? And the answer is no. no. Why is this? Why? Is, what do you mean? The question is. It's been the question is how are you all going to like wrestle the keys to the estate from Lord Crantham? Poison. No. Come on. There's got to be some at Bates's old house. Yeah, or just ask Braithwaite to whip something up for you. <laughs> Eye of Newt, <laughs> etc. Yeah. You'd think I'd remember that. I played one of those witches once. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I'm like, ah, 
They can pick up all the ingredients at Tuttle's. (laughs) (laughs) In Rose's room, Anna comes around to the door with some belts. Uh, Apparently, Rose had asked if she could borrow one from Lady Mary. Yeah. I'm glad they're getting into belting because the drop waist can be really tyrannical. (laughs) Well, it's, you know, they all look good in a drop waist, but you Mm -hmm. don't want to do it too much. Fair enough. Just a little tip from me to you. (laughs) Ladies, if you have a waist... Don't wear a drop waist dress. Just if you've got curves, it's not for you, Brony. Stick to the the A-lines and the Ampere waists that you're used to. (laughs) Rose has a question for Anna. She's found a flyer down in the village and thinks that it looks fun. Uh, Now, it's... uh, it's not clear at this point what right. it is, but it's a, uh, what is it called? A thé dansant. Okay, a thé dansant, which, uh, Brits, get your nose out of the French's butthole. They can't. Just call it a tea dance. They. <sighs> Regardless. Sorry. Rose thinks that McGee won't let her go without a chaperone, and Edith's going to be in London, and Mary's not in the mood. And Anna thinks that it's something for servants and farm workers, and thus wouldn't be appropriate for Rose to go to, which mm-hmm. Rose well knows. Yeah. So she's, yeah, she's been desperately trying to dance the one step and practicing in a room. We're actually here. She's got her own phonograph in the room. And she's got all magazines scattered everywhere. Oh, she's just living my dream. (laughs) Yeah. And so she asks if Anna will come with her and Anna says she can't go. Right. But Rose knows that Anna loves dancing and that Bates is not a dancer. Although he's human. (laughs) (laughs) Like at this point? You know, I was trying to quote a killer song and then you had to bring it back to the limp. I don't care about the killers, Kelly. Oh my God. (laughs) Well, I guess we know you're not human or a dancer. (laughs) There, I saved it despite your best efforts, Bates man. Sorry. Batesman, Batesman. That was a non sequitur musically. Anna says no, despite how much she wants to dance. Yeah, she's like, I'm not going with you. That's right. Yeah. Which brings us to our other recurring segment, uh, in which we're going to hear some things from our very own phonograph fanatic, Kelly. I'm actually not a phonograph fanatic. We've been meaning to buy. A record player for years. For about five years at this point, huh. yeah. Uh, well, maybe we should figure out what the anniversary of wanting one was and uh, buy yeah. it. But not until we've given them fashion backwards. Indeed. So, before it was the harbinger of doom that we've seen on <laughs> Downton Abbey, <laughs> right. several inventors had actually devised machines to record sound before Thomas Edison invented the phonograph in 1877. But his was the very first one that could actually produce, uh, sorry, that could record and reproduce a sound. Oh, okay. So they could record sound, but they could not play it back. I believe they could, um, they called uh, these two predecessors the phonautograph and the paleophone. Okay. And recordings made with a phonautograph, phonautograph, that's hard to say. Yeah. Uh, were intended to be visual representations of the sound. And actually, it wasn't until 2008 that they took these recordings and like, were hey, like, hey, here's this old sound. <laughs> Cause, you know, somebody was in grad school and needed something to do. Right. Well played. And then the paleophone was intended to be uh, something that could record and reproduce sound. But he basically just came up with a, the concept. Mm. And then, you know, Edison successfully demonstrated uh, the phonograph. And presumably, Charles Cross, the man who invented the paleophone, shot himself. <laughs> you can call me on your paleophone. <laughs> so... 
the way that Edison's phonograph worked, uh, it recorded sound onto a tinfoil sheet phonograph cylinder. And uh, then it was Alexander Graham Bell, actually, hmm. uh, his Volta laboratory made a lot of improvements uh, in the 1880s, including the use of wax-coated cardboard cylinders and a cutting stylus that moved from side to side in a zigzag pattern across the record. So, uh, you know, you mentioned Microsoft earlier. Right. You know, Thomas Edison created the phonograph, but he was, you know, he was an inventor. Right. He was not interested in refining it for <laughs> use by the common man. Right. <laughs> Uh, except in the sense that he owned the patents. Well, right. So for a long time, uh, about 20 years, the wax-coated cylinders were the standard for recording and playing back sound. Mm -hmm. At the turn of the 20th century, a man named Emil Berliner initiated the transition from the cylinders to gramophone records. Uh, So these are a flat, double-sided disc with a spiral groove running from the periphery to near the center. So... This has not changed at all. Yeah. Uh, what a record is yeah. has not changed. And I mean, honestly, that was the thing that struck me the most when I was doing this research is that the phonograph was invented in 1877 and it wasn't really until the 1980s that they were displaced by cassettes and CDs and other things that could be recorded digitally. Mm-hmm. And just now in an age where, you know, an iPhone becomes obsolete within a year. Right. To think of a media source mm-hmm. being unchanged for a hundred years yeah. is something pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah. Our children will be baffled, <laughs> completely flummoxed. That's true. So throughout the years, they made other uh, improvements beyond just you know the the tweaks that Graham Bell did and mm-hmm. also Berliner's uh, records. Yeah, uh, and then they would modify the turntable and the drive system that powers it and makes it go around the needle and the stylus and the sound and equalization systems. I'm not going to get into that stuff too much because it's very, very deep cuts. Right, right. But one thing that I did find out is that when Edison was designing the gramophone, uh, he used a diamond stylus mm-hmm. and he used also a sapphire stylus because they are very hard minerals. Right. And that, of course is ridiculous <laughs> like you can't apparently have a diamond tipped stylus needle but um they used to in the early days they would sell uh steel styluses by the pack because they were ground down so quickly mm. by the records because i mean right the records at that time you know before vinyl mm-hmm. uh they were made of very heavy duty industrial materials mm, so okay. whatever you were using whether it was copper or tungsten whatever wire you mm. were using to create the needle it ground down immediately there was one manufacturer of needles that suggested changing the needle after every side so when you flipped oh, wow. the record you were supposed to change the needle oh. yeah and uh i found that incredibly bizarre yeah. and weird but you know edison being edison was like no we're <laughs> using the hardest substance known to man yeah the original word phonograph was actually uh, created by F.B. Fenby. He was an inventor in Worcester, Massachusetts. Is it Worcester? I think it's I think it's like Worcester. Worcester. I don't understand Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. And I've watched the Kennedys twice. <laughs> so he was granted a patent in 1863. You know, over t- uh, ten years before the uh, invention mm-hmm. or the unveiling of the phonograph right. by uh, Thomas Edison. Uh, so he had this device called the electromagnetic phonograph. 
And this was an unsuccessful device, but the system would record a sequence of keyboard strokes onto paper tape. And he never made a model or a workable device, but it's uh, generally regarded as the link between punched paper for piano rolls, which happened oh, in the right. 1880s, and also uh, Herman Holler's punch card tabulator which was used in the 1890 United States Census and a distant precursor of the modern computer. Okay. Citation needed on that, according to Wikipedia. (laughs) There are some material differences in the terminology around record players, just using the contemporary term, in the United Kingdom, the United States, and Australia. In British English, gramophone refers to any sound reproducing machine using 78 RPM gramophone records, uh, and that is because those records were popularized in the UK by the gramophone company. Oh, okay. So that's why in Britain, they would be called a gramophone, mm-hmm. and in the United States, they would be called several other things, which we'll get to shortly. <laughs> And then the gramophone, also generally speaking, referred to a wind-up machine. And then the common name became, you know, record player or turntable once, you know, electricity and vinyl records became a thing. Uh, That made sense. Then in the United States, the phonograph was sometimes used uh, in like the 1890s for the cylinder playing machines. But uh, at the time... They wouldn't call it a gramophone necessarily because the two machines coexisted in the United States, I think, for a bit longer than they did in Britain. There was a generic term, uh, the talking machine, but basically people just kind of started saying phonograph to all of them because people are lazy. Because they felt silly saying talking machine. Well, they really should have. (laughs) Well, I heard on the talking machine, we're going to take the iron horse. (laughs) So around the time of the First World War, uh, the Victrola, which was manufactured by the Victor Talking Machine Company, <laughs> speaking of, <laughs> yeah. but they actually, they concealed the horns. Uh, oh. they, they were in sort of cabinets and they, they looked a bit more attractive okay, yeah. than the horns. Right. So they were so popular that everyone just called everything a Victrola. Right, right. And actually, in America, uh, it changed in the 1920s to record players. So I believe that happened a bit earlier okay, than yeah. it did in Britain. And it's it's likely that that then kind of had bleed over to Britain during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And then on Australia, they always called it record player. Oh, okay. And then turntable was more technical. And then gramophone was restricted uh, to the old mechanical wind-up players Mm. and then phonograph was used the same way as in british english so they had a couple more interchangeable Mm -hmm. terms uh concurrent with each other so i did find this really interesting little tidbit uh that in may of 1889 the first phonograph parlor opened in san francisco customers would sit at a desk where they could speak through a tube and order a selection for one nickel and then through a separate tube connected to a cylinder phonograph in the room below the selection would be played and then by the mid-1890s, most American cities had at least one phonograph parlor. So it was kind of like a uh, an internet cafe huh, yeah. back in the 1990s. <laughs> and then there was a sort of like jukebox-style phonograph uh, invented by Louis T. Glass and William S. Arnold uh, of the middle initial having <laughs> glasses and Arnold's. <laughs> Anyway, they were uh, they were not that great though. Uh, they had batteries that would break if it fell or was smashed with another object. 
I guess they were putting these in like saloons. I don't know why this was such I was a like, problem. Don't most most things break when they get smashed with another object? <laughs> but then uh, the battery acid would get all over everything. Oh, so well, these okay. were not super popular. Okay. I found one other really interesting thing out, which was that in the 1920s, radio technology and sales improved uh, exponentially. Mm. And that was a huge blow to the phonograph manufacturers. Right. So, I mean, I guess, you know, it was, you know, it wasn't quite the powerhouse that we were kind of referring to for a hundred years. But I mean, the radio definitely put a dent in its business model. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the radio in that sense uh, was essentially, you know, the streaming music Right. of its day yeah, and yeah. disrupted the entire phonograph inf- industry, which was in its infancy. It's yeah. not like it had been going for hundreds of years, but yeah. Yeah. the uh, record companies then doubled down on improving audio fidelity, mm. um, which was basically mostly to oversimplify, like deciding what kind of stylus you used and how it went over the grooves and how much contact it made. Mm-hmm. And they actually kept their businesses going really strong until uh, the 1929 stock market crash, at which point uh, most of the uh, phonograph or gramophone companies uh, merged or went out of business. Mm. So that is the deal with the phonograph. Okay. So, I mean, they were extremely popular. Yep. It's uh, very plausible that Rose would have had her own, being the child of privilege that she is. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Well, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> we do this every time. <laughs> we do. In McGee's room, uh, she wants to know how her uh, scarfchief or whatever uh, <laughs> got damaged. But Ed- Edna says that she doesn't want to say. She can't say. Uh, and McGee says that she's truly vexed. It was a favorite. But that she'd better go pick out another one. And she doesn't really push Braithwaite on it. <laughs> In the Carson cave, Carson's going through some old theater memorabilia. Boo! Boo! Mrs. Hughes happens by, you guys, I can't even get through this. (laughs) Mrs. Hughes happens by and asks, why are you looking at it now? And Carson won't say, and then he finds what he's looking for, a picture of this woman, a friend at one time, Alice Neal. Yeah. He was fond of her, but he felt she'd treated him badly. So Carson's a nice guy, TM. (laughs) But what does it matter? We shout and scream and wail and cry, but in the end, we all must die. And Mrs. Hughes says, well, now that's cheered me up, which is the appropriate response. Because, like, what? Nobody, nobody's talking about dying right now, Carson. Well, I mean, uh, he is going to die alone. Well, yeah, but it seems like it's mostly his fault. (laughs) Yeah, and he's known that for a while. (laughs) At the Dowager house, Spratt very skeptically announces that Mr. Bates has arrived. I, I enjoyed the look he gave. I just really want there to be like a very short web series that's just sprat <laughs> through all of these seasons of Downton Abbey. And like, what did he think of all this? You know, like Mr. Bates being the valet, even though he was wanted for murder. And just like, how did he feel that Bates <laughs> was reflecting on, on, on his position? Yeah. Uh, in any case... The Dowager Countess, also somewhat surprised, uh, he says that he is there regarding Mr. Mosley the Younger, to which the Dowager Countess says that you make him sound like a Greek philosopher. He is. That's why he can't get a job. <laughs> Indeed. But um, Yeah. Uh, that's right. He <laughs> He's very wise. If only we had the wit to follow him. <laughs> but she says, are you asking me for money? Because, of course. Um, and he says that he is, but that they will have to trick 
Molesley into accepting it. So, great. Boo! <laughs> In the library, McGee encounters Thomas uh, while she's looking for Lord Grantham. Thomas stops her and says that Edna is very unhappy. Yes. McGee puts on her bitch face and says that she has good reason. And then Thomas and Braithwaite didn't want to point the finger, but uh, he still manages to incriminate Anna yeah. as the culprit. Again, as if Anna would ever burn anything. Right. And B, I just don't understand how they have failed to notice Thomas's schemery after 10 right. years. How are you not falling for this one? Because he's fairly transparent about this. He's extremely transparent about this. But yeah. anyway. But Mc- I guess he's still riding the, uh, you know, nanny gate. Uh, <laughs> Victory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where's the new nanny? Eh, she's fine. <laughs> She's off with the kids. They haven't seen her in days. Uh, anyway, LG finds Vic G and they go off. But uh, Thomas has said there's no one so jealous as a lady's maid. And I'm like, who says that exactly? <laughs> Can you cite your source, please? I want to know who this is. <laughs> you know, everyone. Yeah. And why did it, why would Annie have even had the scarf or chef? Like, why? Why would she have been in a position? Exactly. Anyway. Unless she deliberately took it from her. Right. And like, uh, anyway. Yeah. So we move on. In Mary's room, Anna and Mary, uh, they, they drop a bottle of perfume while handing it from one to the other. Uh, so Mary's, it spills everywhere, and Mary says, oh, the room will smell like a tart's boudoir. And I'm like, have you been in one? And then Anna <laughs> says, oh, well, I used to room with Ethel. <laughs> I was going to say, you mean Rose's room? <laughs> Boom. <laughs> um, Aw, Rose isn't a tart. I She's know. just high-spirited. I know. Oh, but remember when she was having an affair with that married man? Well, right. And definitely isn't a virgin? All right. Yeah. And she the, can get upgraded to tart. The side boob? The side boob. Yeah. That was slut, though. She was a slut well, That's that. true. <clears throat> in any case, the perfume is all gone, so they will have to get more from Mr. Roberts in York. Is he related to Dr. Robert? Uh, Maybe he is the, uh, yeah, he's his father, it would have been. Okay. Yeah. He dropped the S yeah. when he became a crooked doctor. <laughs> right. In America. Um, so Anna volunteers to go, and then says like, oh, well, and also, there was this Tate on Sant, and Rose wants to go. And Mary's like, well, I suppose it is rather slow here for a girl her age. You know, Mary, fortunately. I just like to imagine Mary as a teenager, just <laughs> like, constantly sitting around sighing as a teenager right well i mean because mary's been you know 45 her whole life exactly yeah yeah so she says yeah go ahead and and she tells anna to keep rose out of trouble unbloody likely right at the door of shay mosley <laughs> although it doesn't even look like the mosley's house when we've Actually, seen it before that's true. it really doesn't but at any rate, Molesley, the younger, doesn't understand why Bates wants him to sign Gwen's card, but he can't find a good reason not to. Yeah, he was like, Bates confused, like, is right. then very creepily being friendly. Yeah, it's disturbing, actually. And, and then Bates asks Molesley for dinner, and Molesley says that he's being very friendly, and that, uh, Bates is usually courteous, but not friendly, except, of course, to Anna. And then Bates says he'll try to do better in the future. Again, just like you, Poindexter. <laughs> yeah. He's like, what if I keep smiling with no expression behind my eyes? Right? Will that help? It's like, Ugh. Maybe that's why you don't have any friends. <laughs> Is that your tactic you've been using? <laughs> it's not a good tactic. Yeah. 
At the Dowager house, Spratt introduces Branson to see the Dowager and Mary, who is there. He apologizes for being late, but they say it's all right. Um, and the Dowager has an idea. She says she's asked Branson here because she has an idea, and Mary says that she must call him Tom. <laughs> and she says, oh, I thought I didn't have to anymore now that he's the agent. And Branson's like, I don't mind calling anything, yeah. but... She says that she sees that she's been beaten, the Dowager does, and she sympathizes with King Canute, who once ordered the Tide not to come in or go out or something, uh, and the Tide didn't listen. So Tide? Yeah. That was back when England was ruled by Vikings, I believe. I see. Yeah. Well, that seems like a Viking move. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he's, uh, the Dowager says that since either Mary or George owns half of Downton, she wants Mary to have her say. Uh, Mary says, whoa, but didn't you see what happened at dinner or whatever? But the Dowager says, aha, but this is her plan. She wants Tom to be her instructor, and he can take her on his rounds and explain the crops and the the live the livestock, <laughs> which is fantastic. This is the best scene. Yeah. Oh, this, this is, is so, so great. great. Yeah. <laughs> Jinx. Yeah. <laughs> We can't really do that. It'll ruin the podcast. That's a good point, actually. <laughs> um, Mary is like, oh, wouldn't it be underhand not to tell Papa? Which, hey, no. Come on. Have you met your dad? Yeah. Why? What does he deserve from any of you at this point? Yeah. In any case, the Dowager says that there can be too much truth in any relationship. That's true. That's why I don't tell you what I do on Thursdays from 4.30 to 7.10. Oh, my. Exactly. <laughs> Isabel uh, rings at the front door of Downton. Carson asks her in and says they weren't expecting her and none of the family is at home. But as it turns out, Isabel came to see Carson for reasons that I'm sure we all know. Yeah. Look, y'all, I hate this so much. I'm just going to speed through this. Right. So basically, she's like, hey, your boy Griggs has a job in Belfast and he wants to talk to you before he leaves. And Carson's like, he's not my boy. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going over there. And then Isabel says that Griggs claims that he did not cause Carson any unhappiness. And Carson says that Griggs was always a liar, which, yeah, yeah, you're actors. Okay. (laughs) Deal. Isabel, you know, tries to encourage him to, to end the feud, but Carson says that it's his business, even if it is overstepping his bounds. Isabel does finally agree. And then she leaves. Yeah. Uh, Then she steps outside and like, there's this weird pause where she's like, I believe I just shat my pants. <laughs> I just, she was like, no one resists my meddling. <laughs> yeah, her meddling powers have grown. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in Gregson's flat. Who, we can take as long as we need on this scene. Yeah, which first of all, the flat is gorgeous. Like, is that available? Yeah. We'll move to London. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, you know, huge windows, so it's all very, you know, beautifully lit. Uh, he's got books everywhere. Oh, which we are huge fans huge of. Huge fans of that. Uh, just really nice. Gregson offers to make Edith some coffee. I believe they've just had lunch. I think she's at his flat having lunch. That makes sense, yeah. Which is scandalous. That's more scandalous than being out with a man in public and drinking. You would think. And smooching on him. Well, just you wait. <laughs> uh, and Edith says that he's very domesticated. Uh, Gregson says that, oh, you know, Monk lays everything out. I just pour in the water. Tony Shalhoub? <laughs> Yeah, he he lays it all out, then goes off to solve a case. Yeah, and have OCD, but that's why he lays it all out. He's like, oh, you never do this right, Gregson. <laughs> right. Tony Shalhoub! 45 degree angle. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like that he's saying I'm Tony Shalhoub in that. 
when he's mom. <laughs> right. Oh, he's so OCD. He can't keep up the pretense anymore. <laughs> also, again, so great that uh, Baron Fellows and his infinite wisdom saw fit to put characters in these two episodes named Grig and Gregson. Yeah, agreed. It's been a, it's been a, a trial for me. In any case, Edith says that it's still impressive compared to Papa, who, uh, if the servants ever left, he would be found dead in the kitchen looking for food. <laughs> he can't even boil a kettle. Yeah. Which Sybil couldn't either. That's true, but she learned. She did learn. Yeah. Because she had intellectual curiosity, and for that, she had to die. <laughs> Sigh. Yeah, so Gregson observes that, you know, life would be different with him, that, you know, they don't have all those servants, for example. <gasps> It just, ah, oh, that would be so great to leave Downton Abbey and have, you know, a swing in London apartment and just eat at restaurants all the time. I mean, it's basically what we did when we moved to <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no, but she's, I'm just like, man, she'd love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not having to, you know, go back and forth all the time. She really would. Uh, so she asks how things are going on the old uh, divorce front. He says that his lawyer th- thinks things are going well. She asks again if he's really sure he wants to go through with this. She says that people will hate him for it. And he says, will you hate me? And she says, no. And he says, then I can handle it. And he says, I'm pretty tough. I really like this guy. Yeah. I'm also like terrified that something horrible is going to happen obstacle-wise. Well, I know. feel like this is such a Jane Eyre situation and that the crazy wife can't possibly stay locked up in the attic forever. That like, is, I don't know. That is a reasonable hypothesis. I just, but- I feel extremely... I mean, I can't even believe I'm saying this again, but I just want Edith to get something good. I know. All right. He kind of looks like Anthony Strallen. I'm willing to overlook that. You know, you know who the crazy wife is? Vera Bates. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) That would be something. That would be something. (laughs) Edith then asks if he would like to see Downton. Uh, somewhat semi out of the blue. Uh, he is, he's like, yeah, where did that come from? Also, they have very small coffee cups, I noticed, just struck me as odd. Um, I don't know if it was made more, if they made stronger coffee at the time or what. Well, it would have been not newfangled per se, but I mean, coffee is not the traditional drink, you know? True. So, you know, it was probably very dainty. It to could, start. Yeah, makes sense. We should have looked at the history of coffee in Britain. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's there was a lot of interesting stuff in uh, in, in the Baroque era mm-hmm. with coffee. So. Yeah. Anyway. But yeah, Edith is like, well, aren't you curious to see my childhood home? And he says that he's curious about everything to do with her, but that his situation would frighten her family and they don't want that. Yeah. And he already did frighten her family. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um. But Edith suggests that uh, they're having a house party the next month and that he should come for that. He'll, you know, kind of blend in because there will be so many people there. And she knows that McGee won't mind because she likes him. Uh, he points out that her father does not like him. And Edith's like, oh, he just doesn't know you, uh, which is, uh, you know, bullshit. Yeah. But that he will like him once he knows him. Uh, and then she says that she'd better gulp her coffee down if she's to catch the three o'clock. And Gregson asks her to stay. And like, you say, <laughs> I only hear what I want to. Yeah. Like, like baby, it's cold outside, except without the implied violence. Yeah. Um, and 
she says she says she won't, but she's finding it harder and harder to say no. And he's put his and, hand on her knee. Yeah. And after like, she says she's put her hand on his hand on yeah. her knee, and then we see his face. Yeah. And we're like, there is no way they're not boning <laughs> right now. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know though. Like, I hard to say. I want to say yes, but also, you know, Edith. You know, Edith is acquainted with the ways of the world. It's true enough, and and the downfalls thereof. Yeah, and I mean, she orchestrated them for right, her sister. Exactly. Yeah. But um, I wonder if people ever talk about that. Like <laughs> at this point, like right. oh my god, do you remember? Back, I think it was around when the Titanic sank, <laughs> when Mary Crawley killed that Turkish diplomat with her vagina. <laughs> Please spare me the details. <laughs> but it's so fun to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Outside of Downton, Mary gets into the car with Branson. That's the whole scene. Right. We needed to see that. Sure. We needed to see that. Right. Not. Well, Mary reacting to Matthew's letter. In the next scene where they're where they were driven somewhere, we'd be like, "How did they get there?" Did I would they... definitely be asking these questions. Yeah, was it a transporter? Uh, I will say, I like the idea of Mary's lavender coat, mm. but in execution, it does not suit her very well. Okay, she is also wearing a hat very similar to Anna's head eating hat. Yeah, there... and I do not like this style. Like, I may perhaps have of... to investigate more hats. Is it some kind of like mega cloche? It's, like, yeah, it is. It's yeah. like a mega cloche, and yeah. it's awful. Yeah do not want <laughs> uh we see jimmy kent wandering around a marketplace so presumably in york and he sees rose and anna rose by the way i uh, is wearing some red shoes with uh, kind of a thick heel and some straps i just point that out because we almost never see anybody's shoes it's true so um and the rest of her outfit is very muted mm-hmm. uh, so they kind of stood out so rose and anna go into a dance hall advertising a tete dansante and really it's dark inside to the point where the first time we watched the episode i thought this whole thing was happening at mm-hmm. night just sort of partly just because i assume that's when people dance nope um, not at a tea dansant yeah clearly. well that makes sense it's probably a tea time dance well, it's like yeah. happy hour yeah but yeah. instead of saying that you know they were all there to drink they had to have like an excuse <laughs> right so this poorly lit hall of servants seems unsuitable to anna and mm-hmm. rightly so but i think even as anna <laughs> yeah, that's true. She's like, I wouldn't go in there. Yeah. She uh she knows her status in, you know, oh, servant world. For sure. Yeah. Rose doesn't care. She also says not to be not to call her milady, which Anna's flustered. <laughs> and there there's a group of bros up on a balcony that are really liking what they're seeing mm-hmm. with Rose. Rose wise. Yeah. They're like, mm, yeah. Whatever we say in York. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to pork her York. <laughs> I'm certain that that's not it. <laughs> Cousins, do you live in York? Have you ever been porked in York? If so, we want to hear your story. Dr. Seuss after dark. <laughs> Please don't say that. <laughs> so a waiter comes by to take their order. Anna suggests that they have tea, it being a tea dansant, and Rose says, sure, but then asks for something special in hers. So like pot? <laughs> no, no, no. I wonder if they had pot in Britain at this point. That's a good question. Because they certainly did in the United States. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, it's known going back, like, hundreds of years, but as far as something that was, you know, used in, like european society mm-hmm. i really don't know sounds like a future uh fashion backwards for me sweet 
Some music starts up, and it is indeed a one-step, the very dance she's been practicing. How convenient. Yes. So Rose starts, uh, you know, making herself clearly available, and... She's so bold. Yeah. She is quite bold. Anna thinks it's too bold, Mm -hmm. but Rose points out that it's working, because now some man has come up and asked her to dance, which she accepts eagerly. Anna asks if they shouldn't be introduced, and the guy's like, oh, I'm Sam something. Gamgee. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Folly. Which, you know, Anna's like, I meant be introduced, not mm-hmm. just introduce ourselves like a farmer, uh, <laughs> which he, he kind of is. He kind of is. Uh, and Rose says, oh, I'm Rose Smith. This girl does not have her backstory straight at all. And yeah. as a former acting major, mm-hmm. I find that appalling. Yeah. If you're ever going to impersonate anybody, you really need to have this stuff straight. I mean, look, one time I was at a coffee shop back in Cincinnati when I was in high school and a clearly like tweaking cross-dressing <laughs> guy, or he may have been transitioning. I don't know what his deal was, but he was really high. Okay was like, oh, hey, how are you? Like, he knew me. And he was uh-huh. like, what's your name? And my best friend was in the bathroom, so I was like, Pam. <laughs> my name's Pam, and I live at her address. And... <laughs> I mean, it all turned out fine. Right. Uh, they never did find Pam's body. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. She's still alive. And the she code has- for our security system is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Rose questions Sam's dancing ability, but he informs her that they call him Twinkly Toes. And I'm like, dude, they're making fun of you. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Kent comes up to Anna. It's like, hey, what are you doing here? And asks her to dance. And Anna says, well, okay, but only to keep an eye on Lady Rose. Anna needs to loosen up, man. Yeah, and also... I don't like the effect that head-eating hat is having on her. Yeah, well, this, oh, this is a different hat. This is like... This outfit. Yeah. This hat is like a regular cloche, but the color scheme is terrible. And then she's wearing it with this green dress that makes her look like vomit. Yeah. Uh, it's terrible. Very unpleasant. Uh, Rose looks lovely as usual. Yes. So while they're dancing, Sam says that he is the undergardener for Lord Ellis near Easingwald, uh, which is totally a place. Sure. And then Rose says she's at Downton Abbey, which again, <sighs> don't use your real address. <laughs> Sam suggests that she's a lady's maid because she's posh enough. And then Rose uh, spends the rest of the conversation pronouncing random words in an exaggerated non-posh <laughs> accent. She says she's not a lady's maid and she doesn't think she's clever enough. Sam suggests that she has some farmers hanging around for, uh, vying for her attention and Rose is coy and then is startled to see Jimmy Kent. Or James. And he says that he saw them out in the uh, the market and he thought he'd see what the crack was. And Rose says it's a good crack. Yes. Uh, and etymology note here, uh, crack, which is just a slang term that, you know, you can sort of piece together what it means like where's the action at or things mm-hmm. like that or the crack right our subtitles spelled it c-r-a-i-c and that appears to be incorrect because what's happened is that term crack spelled like the word crack was a slang term in northern england actually around this time then it became a slang term in ireland became more popular there kind of faded out in england in ireland they would spell it with that kind of gaelic spelling interesting and then it became fashionable again in England, like it was like reintroduced from Ireland more recently, mm-hmm. and so now they spell it with that Gaelic spelling. That's really cool. Yeah. Good story. Thank you. 
Uh, Branson and Mary look out over uh, the fields of Downton. Uh, which they drove to this point in their car. In their car. So did they get in the car they or did, not? We did see actually a little shot of them driving, I think. I think you're right. Um, and actually it's a truck. Yeah. No, you're right. That, or the that's flatbed. A, yeah. Yeah. Mary says that she loves the view and Branson says... Yes, I can't see Papa from here. <laughs> uh, and Branson says so she can uh, learn about the view and he points out where uh, Oakwood Farm is versus the lands they own. Uh, she asks if they want to take it over, and he says no, that the, the olds are good tenants and hard workers. Branson then brings up the death duties. Uh, they had, you know, that's the big issue they face them, and there's no special treatment for widows. Uh, she's not surprised, and Branson says, it's funny to think about that you have to pay just as much tax as if he'd left it all to Mrs. Tiggy Winkle down the road. Uh, Hey, you know what else is funny? What? That's certainly not the attitude that a former <laughs> Irish revolutionary would hold. Right. And why should Mrs. Tiggywinkle have to pay all that much? Right? She's a hedge pig. <laughs> For God's sake. She's got all that washing to do <laughs> and annoying people coming bothering her in stories. Yeah. Like, she'll have to pay it all in, like, ants or something. I, yeah. Ugh, look. Leave Mrs. Tinky... <laughs> leave Mrs. Tiggywinkle... <laughs> leave Mrs. Tiggywinkle alone. <laughs> I did come up with a theory okay. last week, which I tweeted that wouldn't it be amazing if Branson's just been undercover for the IRA the whole time? <laughs> because the IRA starts in 1922. Yeah. Like they come back, they recruit him. They're like, you're our man on the inside. And this time you can dance around the house that's burning <laughs> to the ground. And he's like, well, ever since they hired that nanny that called my child a wicked little crossbreed, I'm kind of over these people. <laughs> Plus, would cover my tracks with that witch I tried to bang. <laughs> <laughs> Banging a witch with Tom Branson. Uh, but in any case, Lord Grantham thinks that to pay the death duties, they should sell off part of the estate. Uh, and Branson wants to know what Mary thinks. Meaning, don't you disagree with Lord Grantham? Which, I don't, I don't know. They have never, like, explained this situation. Like, they keep talking about the financial difficulties mm-hmm. without ever actually explicating right. what the real problems are. I mean, I know that the problem is that the farms are not making a profit right. for the estate. But it's like, you know, depending on how much the death duties are, that might actually be the way to go. Yeah. I mean, we, we really have no way of assessing from our perspective. But I think Mary is going with the relatively safe, you know, algorithm that like, well, what does Papa want? That's probably wrong. <laughs> yes, it's called uh, Grantham's Law in mathematics. <laughs> we cut to Bates in his room. Right? We've never seen this room before. Yeah, but uh, what but else could Bates it be? is uh, forging Mosley's signature and uh, chuckling to himself, thinking, "Oh, I'm lucky Mosley's dumb as a stone." <laughs> I don't like this. I don't like forgery for yeah, any reason, right? Even for dramatic, like unless you're a villain, I don't want no forgery, right? Agreed. And like, are you not? Uh, you know. Did that time in jail teach you nothing? Right? Yeah. You just got out of jail, Brony. Yeah. And if you go back, we are not talking about it. No, at all. We're writing you out we of our podcast. We will draw the line. If you go back to if, jail. No, there's just no bait. Yeah. When people talk about him, we'll be like, who? <laughs> yeah. Uh, back in York, Jimmy Kent is dancing with Anna. Uh, he says that he's got good tickets for him and Ivy to see Phyllis Dare. So this was his ulterior motive for going to York. Right. Indeed. 
which Ivy doesn't know that she is invited yet. Um, some guy then tries to cut in with Rose and Sam and won't take no for an answer on it. Uh, Jimmy's starting to tell Anna that he's starting to really fall for Ivy and not just be doing it as a joke anymore. You know, for some reason, he is falling for Ivy. Um, is it because of her winning? Is it because she's really... Uh, Is it because she's good at her job? Oh, wait, wait, wait. I know why. Why? Because Baron Fellows wills it so. I guess. Like, Dude, Daisy is right there. What are you... (gasps) uh. Anyway, uh, a fight breaks out. The guy who's trying to cut in starts fighting Sam, and uh, Rose (laughs) fights on Sam's side and is like, you know, beating the guy with her fists, etc., the police whistles are heard in the distance coming to break it up and Jimmy Kent, you know, manhandles uh, Rose out of there to, to, for them all to make their getaway. I think it's so funny. And I mean, I know that it's, you know, certainly not stopped, but like the idea of like trying to cut in on somebody, those people being like, no. And then like getting in a fight, like, yeah, the idea that anybody like has a right to like dance with someone else or court someone else. Right. It's very odd to me that it comes to physical violence so frequently. Yeah. I, uh, I agree. We're not violent people. No, we're not. You know, no, uh, no Mrs. Pankhurst. We, (laughs) it's true. Down in the servants dining hall, Mosley sidles in and, uh, apparently Mr. Bates did not say that he was coming despite having invited him. Right. So the stupid plot thickens. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes invites him to sit down, and then Bates, uh, not at all in a good lying way, <laughs> right. uh, says he came across that note of mine and that he'd like to pay it off. He says that Mosley lent him 30 pounds when he first came, yeah. and he'd like to pay it off now in front of all these people for some reason. Right. Mrs. Hughes is very impressed that Mosley would have loaned anyone 30 pounds. Yeah. I don't know what the, you know... The, right the comparison is but it's apparently quite a lot of money yeah well i mean i mean if he'd run up 15 20 pounds i mean if he felt like he was never gonna have 15 or 20 pounds again to be able to pay that uh-huh. off clearly yeah 30 that's not bad anyway uh mosley's very confused and then Bates shows him the forged signature on the note so it must have been you right oh you know what he should have said it was that night you got drunk <laughs> except i think Bates was maybe in jail then or something <laughs> uh, anyway, I'd written you a letter from jail. <laughs> so Anna gets in, and Daisy fills her in on what's going on. Mosley sputters and tries not to take it, but Bates hands him the money and then takes off. Yeah, uh, and I'm like, I hope you ran this plan by Anna, which uh, apparently he did not. Apparently not. No. And she follows him as uh, Jimmy asks to speak with Carson. But in the hallway, Bates tells Anna that he will make anything better for her that he can. And she wants to know how he managed it. And he says that as he keeps telling her, prison was an education. Uh, and Anna is not pleased by this. Right. Beca- no more so when he turns around and says, oh, I hope you're ready to have bum sex. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, but also, like, is not the clear implication from that that he stole it? Like, is that not... That is. Well, and just... I don't think that saying that prison was an education and then not explaining exactly what you mean is the kind of behavior you want in a spouse. Right. And I think mainly the thing Anna would like to know is, was that our money? Yeah. Because <laughs> it wasn't. I'm already wearing the ugliest hat imaginable. <laughs> Am I going to have to start handcrafting them from Mrs. Patmore's <laughs> leftover burlap sacks? 
Yeah. Also, on this last viewing, I think Mrs. Hughes was clued in on the plan, sort of the way she was acting and, like, That's lending true. support to, well, like... Well, but then again, you're telling Mrs. Hughes, but not your spouse. Right. So... I mean, I understand the need to tell Mrs. Hughes everything. Yeah. Which is what I do uh, between the hours of 4.30 and 7.10 <laughs> every Thursday. <laughs> Damn it! I told you! Ah, uh, well, it was bound to come out eventually. And hey, good news. We're done with that plot line for this episode. Hooray! Woo! Get out of here, Molesley. <laughs> uh, in the Carson cave, Jimmy Kent is asking if he can take Ivy to the theater, having already bought the tickets. Uh, Pat Moore and Hughes are in there as well, and they say that, you know, they could work it out so that they could have the same half day. Uh, Carson says, I don't know. It's turning into Liberty Hall around here. To which we concur. Yeah, we fully agree. Well, and this is the thing. Like, listen, Downton Abbey, you need to decide if the rules matter or if the rules don't matter. I mean, yeah. I guess they don't. Anyway. Anyway, he says he says he can go, but he, and he says, but no lingering. And I'm like, that is the only thing that Jimmy Kent does. Oh, that's is true. Linger. Yeah, and he winds clocks sometimes. <laughs> he Not has anymore. To, he doesn't. He has to. <laughs> he has to let it linger. <laughs> Traumatized him. <laughs> yeah, uh, because Patmore says that they won't be cooking. They will all be dining with Lady Lawson. So. See more of that, the yeah. relationships with the other nobility, and I would like to see more of what Branson does. Yeah, despite my anger <laughs> at that whole character, right? But yeah, I mean, you know, because we used to more like Lord Anthony Strallen and mm-hmm. like the Bishop that time, and anyway. So Jimmy goes off to tell Ivy, and Pat Moore says that he hopes she hopes he doesn't break her heart, and Mrs. Hughes says that we all must have our heart broken a time or two before we're done. They all agree. Carson then takes this moment to say that it's strange to think that theater was once a part of his life. Carson, just go see him. Quit being such a drama queen. He doesn't. (laughs) And also, he's totally right. Um, It's not... About not going to see Grig? Yeah. Look... I, what what is why is he why is he obligated to drop everything and go have this closure with Grig on Grig's schedule? I a don't care. My point is that he's going through the motions in this episode that is clearly leading to a resolution with this Grig thing. I just am so annoyed with it. I'm just yeah, but that's Julian Fellows. Like Carson is intends to stay strong on this. <laughs> um. Anyway that's happening it's tomorrow morning on the 11 o'clock train is when he's heading off to Gee, Belfast. now that specific time information has been dropped i wonder what the resolution's going to be yeah which by the way i don't know that who he's going to do in belfast i'm not sure that he's blue enough for that town yeah blue like in you know blue steel <laughs> i'm sorry i it's- was thinking about like is this like a a dirty opera? <laughs> no, that, that's fair. I mean, I just hope he's Protestant. <laughs> he must be. You would think. If Carson was friends with him. Yeah. He must have been Catholic or Protestant. Well, either way, somebody will want to shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> that's the Belfast promise. Yeah. You Charlie Grigg. We heard you were in the cheerful Charlies. Bang! You <laughs> <laughs> ain't cheerful no more. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, in Lord Grantham's room, uh, Lord Grantham comes in and surprises Bates, and he says that he was hoping to catch Bates. And uh, Bates apologizes, saying he hadn't heard the gong. Right. But apparently, the gong has not been run yet, and Lord Grantham's just being a dick as usual. <laughs> 
so then Lord Grantham launches into this thing that he's clearly been forced to say against his will by his wife. Right. That he understands how tiresome it must be for Anna that a junior housemaid has been promoted to senior ladies maid right. ahead of her. But she needs to go easy on Braithwaite. And McGee feels there's been some hard feeling between ba- Braithwaite and Anna. And Bates is naturally confused right. but says that he will yeah, I mean, all offer he can... some consideration, which yeah. is what Lord Grantham requests. Yeah. And I'm just, again, I'm so over this whole Braithwaite thing. Well, And again, like, again, Lord Grantham, have you met Anna? Maybe he hasn't. <laughs> yeah. No, he did. Because remember when she was trying to prove Bates' innocence? Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, but it's just, it's the brusque way that he does it. It's like, do you not remember when y'all were friends well, in the Boer War? And, and That's that's all true. But what may be going on is that he's just annoyed that he, Lord Grantham, has been dragged into this. That's true. So. Look, that is the only justifiable, justifiable position he's taken in the entire episode. Yeah. And I think it's the only one he takes for the rest of it, too. I, I'm almost certainly is the case. In the kitchen, uh, Ivy asks if Pat Moore really means it that she can go, and Pat Moore says, no, I was having you on, which confuses Ivy because she is as dumb as half a rock. Oh my god, what if she hooked up with Molesley? (laughs) They would both be dead within like 48 hours. (laughs) Unless they survived long enough to produce the world's dumbest baby. I am very skeptical that they would make it through nine months with both of them alive. Although I guess if she didn't die, it's still possible. Yeah. I mean, that's even assuming they could figure out the first step. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So Ivy wonders what she should wear and Daisy just gives her a bitch face. Oh, I love bitch face Daisy. Yeah. Maybe Ivy will die on the way back from York. <laughs> Maybe so. And Jimmy Kent along with her. And then Alfred will have a pulmonary embolism in his lung. <laughs> right. And then it'll just be back to Daisy and Mrs. Patmore. Yeah. With possibly a new person that appreciates Daisy. Anyway. Yeah. More Gwen than anything else. No. So anyway, Patmore tells Ivy that it's not Covent Garden and go get me some parsley. And... Alfred pouts and is like, it's only a blooming play, and storms off in his ugly way. Uh, Daisy can't believe that Alfred is still into Ivy. And we can't believe that you're still into Alfred. Yeah, right? Like, that's nothing to brag about. But, uh, yeah, and that's where Mrs. Patmore says that nothing's as changeable as a young man's heart. So I guess Patmore is uh, a, a Daisfrid shipper. Alfsey. Al- Ugh, I hate all of this. I hope this doesn't happen. <laughs> well, yeah, we're not. Again, we're Daisy, not that, yeah, we're not. Remember that what at happened all. the last time you hooked up with a footman? A uh, dumb footman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. William was was he dumb? William was dumber remember. than Alfred. Was he? I, I, like, I mean, Alfred's not bad. He's just uh, awful in this plot. Yeah. Oh, well, and he's a homophobe. But well, that's true. But. At any rate, it's twilight in the fields of Downton and <laughs> Sam Gamgee or whatever the fuck his name was strolls <laughs> along. He rings at the servant's entrance and Thomas answers and Sam asks for the housemaid Rose and Thomas is like, who? He's like, you know, the housemaid Rose. And then Thomas goes, look, chum. <laughs> Which is great. No. And it's like Thomas is suddenly like a, you know, Guy Ritchie style gangster. <laughs> Fortunately, Anna was walking by. Anna's always walking by the back door when shenanigans go down. It's true. To the credit of everyone else. Because otherwise <laughs> they would all be in such deep shit. <laughs> 
So she takes over and then Sam wants, wants to know that Rose is all right and he doesn't mind waiting. He asks if he can come in, but Anna won't let him in. Right. And so then Anna runs back in the house and <laughs> finds Rose coming down the stairs, already dressed for dinner mm-hmm. in a stunning outfit. Yes. And tells her that Sam has arrived to see her and Rose doesn't know what to do because he's standing out in the yard and yeah. she looks, you know, like Rose. Quite posh. Rose, not Smith. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Anna has an idea. Right. Which is a very predictable idea. Yes. But so, nonetheless. Yeah. We see it in action. Down in the downstairs hall, Anna waits for a random maid to walk by so that the coast is clear. And then Rose heads out wearing a maid's outfit. Because apparently dressing for dinner and undressing doesn't take that long after all. And Rose doesn't seem to have a lady's maid. Right. So it's not clear. Although, I mean, in this case, she would have. She would have had Anna. Yeah, that's true. But, anyway, I'm but, curious. Yeah, but that- in general, she doesn't seem to. And that is odd. She must, though. You would think. She is a lady. But it's like, because when Anna brought her that belt, you'd think the lady's maid would have been there at the belt time. Yeah. <laughs> so It's a good point. Yeah. Anyway, uh, certainly we've never seen a lady maid's, a lady's maid for her. Anyway. She should have had her own at Dunneagle, period. Well, yeah, that's certainly true. Anyway. It was Dunneagle. <laughs> Rose uh, Smith. Uh, says that she never saw anything so brave as Sam punching some random guy in a dance hall. That's because you don't remember the war. <laughs> the what? <laughs> um, Sam says that, you know, he's, I've got, I can do more than that. Oral? <laughs> the two-step? <laughs> there's not, there's no such thing as a two-step. Make my mother stop being a bitch. <laughs> He again says that uh, she doesn't sound very Yorkshire, and Rose says, well, that's because I've, I've been all over the place. Uh, Sam moves in quite close, but then kind of gets the hint and backs off a second and says, look, look I'd, I'd like to call on you again. I know I'm not good enough for you, but I'm a steady chap. Uh, just ask Lord Alice's agent. He'll give me a good reference, which was just odd to think about. Oh, well, but, I, I mean, mean, it's not that odd to think about. No, I but, mean... You needed personal references. Remember when we talked about before, just to be friends with someone, you had to have a personal reference. Yeah. And then be referred by the entire group who was present (laughs) at your first meeting. Right, right. But in any case, Rose finally puts an end to this by saying that, oh, remember when you thought there must be a local farmer around? Well, there, there is one, and I've given him my word. Sam says, well, that's put me back in my box. That farmer's a lucky bloke. Uh, Peace out. Uh, Rose calls him back and says that when he meets some future girl that she will be very lucky and she kisses him. Uh, Jimmy Kent at this point comes out for a smoke and is like, uh, what? <laughs> and Rose says, say nothing and I'll be your friend forever. Uh, Sam leaves and uh, Sam was killed on the way back to his home planet. That's a lot of itchy and scratchy and poochy references <laughs> in a single episode. Uh, yeah. Edith has arrived home. Uh, again, it's twilight. <laughs> the time of day, not the best-selling novels. <laughs> right. She uh, hurries across the entrance hall and gathers herself up. She proceeds to the drawing room and uh, explains to the family that we sat forever outside Petersboro. We never found out why. Oh, so that's what they're calling it these so, days. <laughs> sat on his dick outside Petersboro? Mm-hmm. Maybe. <laughs> right. Well, it's not entirely clear, but... Well, look, she stayed much longer 
then she had presumably been given leave to stay. Yeah. Uh, so she asks McGee if she should change and McGee says, it's only us. And the Dowager Countess says, and who are we to warrant any courtesy? <laughs> Mary tells her not to be difficult. Rose then rushes in and As she changed back. Yeah. Looks just as good as before. So then Lord Grantham says he has something to say before Carson comes in. As if on cue, Carson comes in. <laughs> right. Then Lord Grantham says that Carson might as well stay. So I guess you didn't have to say it before Carson came exactly. in. Exactly. What a jerk. Weird. The lawyers say that the letter counts as a will and Mary does own half the estate. Branson says that that sounds like a very good result. Off screen over a shot of Mary and the Dowager Countess. It was just very weird and awkward. Like just I rarely see the show have such a weird edit. Anyway, they all go into dinner, and Mary says that she hopes that Lord Grantham is not disappointed, and he claims that he's not. And then she says that tomorrow the three of them, uh, Mary, Lord Grantham, and Branson, should all sit down the next day and talk properly, blah, 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 taxes, blah, 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 patriarchy. Yes. Uh, downstairs, Anna and Bates are talking, and Anna says that she has no idea what Lord Grantham could have been talking about. Then they see Thomas and Edna, who are giggling conspiratorially by the fireplace. Carson happens by and orders Thomas to come help with the wine, which he apparently should have been doing. And Braithwaite sits by the fire, cackling with glee and brewing up various potions. Now we come to the final scene, which shocked us by being the final scene, both <laughs> right. in the sense that this episode is much shorter than the first one, it is. and B, that it's this stupid plot. Like, this <laughs> is this is our resolution. Right. This is more important, apparently, yeah. than Mary inheriting the estate. Yes. Carson's in the Carson cave, staring at his picture of Alice. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like she must have looked better in person. She really I don't looks think, quite homely. I don't think this photograph does her justice. What if it's like julian fellows his mom or something uh well then i'm sure she looked better in person <laughs> down at the railway station grig is being seen off by isabel and hughes and even dr clarkson who apparently has no other patients uh, right he's like well ever since the war ended i <laughs> find myself with very little to do uh so the train pulls up and oh <laughs> Carson just emerges out of a, right. a plume of steam. Yeah, and he just materializes. He was teleported by Braithwaite. <laughs> so he and Grig go off to, you know, mend fences. Uh, Isabel is delighted but not surprised because, fuck you, Isabel. Because nobody withstands her meddling. Good point. Yeah. Mrs. Hughes is astonished. So it turns out Alice could have been with either one of them but she chose Greg and regretted it right. bitterly sure uh she's dead now after being separated from Greg for years before dying she said that carson was the better man and she really loved him uh and she wanted me to tell you if i saw you again thus ensuring that carson would never stop being a nice guy tm right also here's the time to point out that uh charlie did see carson again and rather than pass on alice's dying wish he attempted to blackmail carson we don't know that for sure because that was potentially 10 years ago i guess that's it was true. not made clear when exactly she died all right that's fair look i agree with you to an extent but also and i just like uh like really like a girl like i wish it had been more like grig had absconded with all their cheer for ch- God, that's hard to say. Yeah. Had absconded with all their cheerful... <laughs> it's like the rural juror. <laughs> he absconded with all the cheerful Charlie's revenues. Yeah. Or just found a different Charlie. Yeah. Like Carson oh. just showed up one day and it was Charlie Smith. <laughs> I'm going to become a butler. 
Uh, <laughs> anyway, so they like shake hands and part friends, and that's good. That's yeah. what counts as a victory on Downton Abbey these days, I yeah. guess. All right, awesome. So, I guess, uh, I guess it only took 20 seconds. That was all they needed. So as the train pulls away, Carson asks Isabel to let him know how much money she spent on Grig. Right. How much do these servants make exactly? Right. Well, she's like, well, it, it did cost rather a lot to get the hobo stink out of my rooms. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Grig also killed on his way back to his home planet. <laughs> yes. And then uh, Mrs. Hughes and Carson walk back to Downton Abbey together. Right. I want to just take this moment to address something. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of Mr. Carson, Mrs. Hughes shippers out there, and I defy you. <laughs> Mrs. Hughes right. deserves significantly better. They would never get along. And I just don't need to see that relationship I think, go I mean, that way. They have a good relationship mm-hmm. and one that has stood the test of time. And not ev- And look – this is me saying this, and I will ship anything. No, I'm shipping Mrs. Patmore and the standing mixer. Okay? Like, I will ship anything. Right. But I love their relationship. Right. It's interesting. There's a lot of texture. Yeah. You know, there's tension sometimes, but I, it doesn't have to be romantic. Agreed. So, cut it out. <laughs> Which brings us... Yes. ...to everybody's favorite awards... <laughs> Including the Golden Globes. That is right. Especially the Golden Globes. Here, here. It's the Abbey Award. Hooray! First up, we have Best Evasion. Yes. Uh, and that we are going to give to, uh, to Rose. Yes. Who... For her masterful evasion of, uh, you know, Sam Gamgee's questions That's about right. her life. Uh, if, you know, Look, uh, she didn't prepare well. She wasn't well prepared, but her evasion i mean it took days mm-hmm. took costume changes like it took a lot of yeah. work and she pulled it off she really did so, so well done well done to rose here here best overbite goes to spratt <laughs> and his extreme displeasure when having to show baits into the dowager cottage yes i'm you know we already said it but good to have spratt around man i oh, i love spratt yes spratt is the cowbell of series four <laughs> worst decision uh that would be braithwaite Messing with our girl, Anna. Oh, shit. I do not have time for this shenanigans, witch lady. Yeah. You need to step off. And you are not going to come out victorious. Oh, you're not. That. Nobody goes up against Anna and wins. Yeah. That's the one thing Baron Fellows has given her. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's like, I may mire you in a horrible subplot about your dumb husband being in prison, yeah, but I will not. May or some... may not be a murderer, may or may not have a limp. Exactly. Yeah. Next, we have the Gibson Girl Award for Best Dressed, and that we're actually giving to McGee. McGee was on point this episode, and she we only was. saw Edith once, and she was in a very, like, drop-waisty, well, it was weird... Like, it was, like, seven different it, colors. Well, and it would, I mean, it just looked like curtains, the way mm-hmm. it was cut. It was just odd. Yeah, take your Vaughn trappings out of here. <laughs> and Rose looked great. She but, did. You know, it wasn't it wasn't overwhelming. Yeah. But McGee looked really great. Well, she, she had was... multiple outfits that each looked good kind of in different ways. Exactly. Too. Well, because she had a very modern one on when she was talking to Barrow. Right. Not that dissimilar from the one that Edith was wearing that we didn't right. like. And it was yeah, we were talking about how it was it was very up to date, but it wasn't like she wasn't too old for it. Exactly. It, it was appropriate yeah. to she her. was co- she was shopping at like, you know, the Ann Taylor <laughs> of the day. Right. Uh 
And then um, she had a really great dress that looked black, but actually it was like blue. Yeah. And that was really pretty. Yeah. And then she had that cool uh, scarf or chief right. that we really liked. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, well done, McGee. You're here. Well done. <laughs> and now we have the Fashion Backwards Award for Backward Fashion, a.k.a. The Backy. <laughs> Uh, Anna won this hands down. Yeah. Like her first scene. We yeah. Like, what, what, what are you wearing? Yeah. It was well, like. Well, because doesn't Bates have some money still? Or did they yeah, spend it well, all on. Like in that God. first time, she was wearing that horrible hat eating, head eating hat. And then like the outfit, like it just like it all the way just, down. It was like, it was like a It was sack. black. It was made of wool. Yeah. It was just hideous. Yeah. She looked like the asphalt that Mosley was pounding. <laughs> and then there was her dance hall outfit. Yeah. And just, ugh, terrible. Yeah. Really awful stuff, Anna. Get your shit together. Yeah. We love you, but we know you can do better. Right. And next we have the new award for this season. Cutest baby goes to Lord Grantham. Yep. We don't think that requires any explanation. That's right. And finally, everybody's mm. favorite award. The Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith's. Yes. Uh, this was a solid five. It was. We felt like maybe last week they were just easing us back in. Yeah. And uh, the Bon Mots were everywhere. And she was were... laying down the law. Yeah. She was she was feisty. She was expressing frustration at not being able to keep up with the times. Yeah. This is this is the Maggie Smith that we pledge to PBS for. That's you know? right. No, I mean, just so many things. The thing about the crops and livestock and the who are we to be shown courtesy. Just... Yeah, just... Uh, yeah. This was a very snappy episode. Nothing happened. Yeah. But at least the dialogue was was very speedy. Yeah. So there's at least that much consolation for us cousins. Indeed. So uh, thank you again for listening. That's right. And uh, check our Tumblr, which I believe is upyoursdownstairs.tumblr.com for other correspondence with the cousins. It's it's well worth checking out. Tweet at us at 5 Maggie Smiths. That's at 5, the number 5 Maggie Smiths. Find us on Facebook, up yours downstairs, exclamation point, or you can just send us a telegram. We are up yours downstairs at gmail.com. That's right. So thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. But until then, up, up yours, yours downstairs, downstairs. luncheon out. <laughs>